Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 353 of Forgotten Classics, where we are still delving into the green jacket. By which I mean, of course, we are investigating the stolen emerald necklace. I do not have any podcast highlights. I don't have anything special to say one way or the other. It's been one of those kind of weeks, just busy and not a lot of extra stuff. So if you need something extra to listen to, go to the sidebar and take a look. There's all kinds of links to all kinds of great things there. Let's talk for a minute about the last episode where we listened to chapters 12 through 15. I really enjoyed Millie talking about her detection methods, where she was saying that you kind of investigate and investigate and listen and see what kind of comes to the surface and you think about it, and one day it kind of all comes clear, as if somebody is writing a poem. I thought, wow, that is a really interesting way to describe the way your brain sorts through stuff and kind of the patterns emerge for you. Of course, we are shown how very different it is from the usual detective method, which was called repeatedly in Millie's mind, the Corbin method. Because when she's talking to the butler, who turns out to be an old friend whose daughter she helped, of course, he is applying all the things that he saw the Corbin detectives do when they were there investigating earlier. Extreme secrecy about who's talking to who, doors are locked, no one can listen, It's very hush-hush and very much what we would expect from a big, tough detective agency. Of course, Millie is very different from this. I thought it was funny that she runs into these people she knows. I'm like, eventually we'll get to the point where she'll meet people who she doesn't know, which she did. She got to know more about the mysterious servant, who is the longtime devoted family servant who's more of a friend than a servant. That's why she's making all those desserts. And we also heard from the client's own lips the story of the necklace disappearing and her son and adopted daughter. Now, I know this lady loves her son a whole lot, but when somebody's been borrowing from the bank he works for $3,000, which, by the way... I looked up on a modern inflation adjustment thing on the internet. Let's say, what if somebody had taken close to $65,000? That's what that would have been equivalent to today. So $3,000 sounds bad enough. And the fact that he's counting it out and the adopted daughter has seen this and is trying to account for the fact that he just seems happy as can be and so innocent and peaceful and all this stuff. And I'm thinking $65,000 what? I don't care what kind of bad habits somebody learned. That's just wrong. But the mother doesn't seem to feel that way, which I think is really interesting. And she seems to feel that the adopted daughter took the necklace so she could cover for the son. There are all kinds of holes in this, right? So we have to get other points of view. And that's what Millie is going to do today. She's going to have some other people to talk to as she fills in the story from different angles, which we saw her also doing last week where she got the butler's point of view on it. That was also interesting because he's not involved personally. So let's dive in. 
Let's see what we find out next. Got your knitting? I thought so. Let's go. Chapter 16 It was Margaret who brought the black dress when luncheon was over, with the message, Miss Annie is lying down. She's going to take a little nap if she can. That's good, replied Millie. She took the dress and ripped the shoulder seams and laid it aside to wait for Mrs. Mason. When, a little later, she appeared in the doorway, wearing the dark red robe, her face was pale. "'I could not sleep,' she said. "'It will rest me to be with you.' She watched Millie's fingers adjusting the folds of the dress. "'How skillful you are! And you are not really a dressmaker?' Millie smiled. "'Oh, yes, I am a dressmaker. I learned the trade. I thought then I should always make dresses.' Now it is ready to try on. She slipped it over the woman's head and drew the folds in place and pinned them skillfully. There, that is much better. She stood back to look at it. Now we can finish it quickly. She gathered up the dress and slipped on her thimble, with a glance at the woman who, with her hands idle in her lap, was looking at her wistfully. Here, you can help. She detached a bit of the trimming and fitted it in place. You can run on this braid while I do the seams. It will save time. Yes, here is an extra thimble. The woman settled contentedly to the bit of work in her hands. The rhythm of the needle passing in and out through the black cloth seemed to tranquilize her, and her face became quiet. I like to sew, she said, smoothing the braid under her fingers. I used to sew when Marion was home. We used to spend hours together, and even when she was off with the young people, I always felt she might come back any minute and take up her work by the other window. I have scarcely touched a needle since she went. She broke off, gazing before her. Then she went on sewing, her needle moving swiftly. Were any of the young people in the neighborhood intimate with her? asked Milly. Did they come and go in the house? Not in the house. They lived out of doors, on the terrace here, and on the tennis court. And there were drives and picnics often, and dances in the winter. But no one who ran in and out of the house more intimately than the others? pursued Milly. The woman hesitated. Yes, Elise Marshall was here often. She was almost like a daughter in the house. The words were low, and Millie caught a hidden tone in them. Perhaps you hoped she might be, some day, she said gently. I did hope it, yes. I tried one day to say something to Stephen about it, but he turned away. And did not say anything? He said, I shall get married when my debts are paid. We never spoke of it again. Was he so deeply in debt? Nearly ten thousand dollars, said the woman. Millie held the work in her hands and stared at her. But how could it be so much, living at home, with no establishment to keep up? He had a good salary? Yes, I don't think it ever occurred to Stephen that he could deny himself anything he wanted. His father was generous with him, too. That was his way. The boy and I must have everything always. That was the way he ruined us, I think. She spoke softly. But even so— Milly spoke thoughtfully. He was hardly more than a boy. Twenty-three, said his mother. The picture I showed you was taken on his twenty-third birthday. She seemed to hesitate a little. She looked down at the bit of sewing on her lap and smoothed it with her fingers. He came to me one morning, very excited. He had a great roll of bills in his hands. He told me he had found five thousand dollars in the pocket of his coat that morning. The coat had been at the tailor's being pressed and had just come home the day before. "'But who could have—' "'There was a note with it,' went on the mother quickly. 
He showed it to me. It was typewritten, not signed, and only said a friend wanted him to pay his debts and settle down, become the man his friends believed him capable of becoming. The giver did not wish to be known. He did not want the money to come between their friendship. It was a free gift. We talked it over, and I advised Stephen to do it. When did this money come to him? It was Wednesday, May 3rd. I have reason to remember the date. Why? It was the next day that the necklace disappeared. Then it was taken after he had the money. Yes, that is what makes it so puzzling. A little click registered itself in Milly's mind. What did you do when you found it was gone? At first, as I told you, I tried to keep it quiet. My husband thought that was best. He said I was sure to find it somewhere. I had laid it down and forgotten. Then, all of a sudden, he seemed to change, and insisted on having in a detective. Then Marion had to be told. And your son? No, we never told him. It was almost a whisper. From the very first I suspected Marion, though I tried hard not to be unjust to her. But I could not conceal the change in my feelings. Marion felt it keenly. At last she went away. Did the others know where she had gone? No. My son was very fond of her. She seemed wrestling with something. Then she spoke in a low voice that could scarcely be heard. He wanted to marry her. I was glad to have her go. I could not let him marry a thief. And he did not marry the other, this Elise Marshall? No. He became restless and went away. He took a position in a branch of the bank he worked in here. It was better pay and a better position. She looked at her appealingly. I think he was glad to go, glad to get away from the sadness and mystery of this house. She sighed, and her hands rested idle in her lap. There was no one else except Marion whom you could suspect? asked Milly. No visitor or one of the servants? Absolutely no one. The necklace was too valuable for a petty thief. Milly broke off her thread and held up the finished work. There, it is done. Would you like to put it on? Yes, I will go to my room. She took it and hesitated, and then spoke quickly. Do you suppose I might have tea brought here, on the terrace by the door? I often have it here when Mr. Mason is away. The servants would not think it queer, and then I could ask you to take a cup with me? Very well. Put on your dress and come down quickly. Something in the woman's face arrested her attention. It was as if she had been under a long strain of some kind, and were suddenly released. When she reappeared, she had tucked a scarlet flower into the folds of the black dress. She touched it lightly, as Milly looked up. "'That is what you have done for me,' she said. "'I put it on to thank you.' She led the way to the terrace, talking happily, and arranged the cups, chatting with the seamstress, as if she were a casual guest of the day. Milly, who had brought her knitting and was seated opposite her in the low wicker chair, regarded her over her needles with a quiet smile. The conversation in the sewing-room had lighted up many things that had puzzled her, and the woman's attitude revealed more than the words she had spoken. Milly, recalling the conversation, gathered up the words and knit them carelessly into the flying wool as it passed through her fingers. The pattern was growing almost intricate. The woman, leaning back in her chair, watched the swift-moving needles that knit the pattern. "'What is it you are making?' she asked. Milly laid down the green knitted meshes and spread them a little on her lap, looking at them reflectively. "'I think it will be a jacket,' she said. "'Don't you know what it will be?' The woman's laugh was puzzled and happy. "'No, not exactly.' She spoke slowly. She was still spreading the meshes under her fingers. "'You see, I always have a piece of work in hand. A new piece for every case.' She looked up. 
Oh, the woman sat up. Millie nodded. Yes, this is yours. The other looked at it more closely. But you have made mistakes, she said. She pointed to the scattered doubled and pearled stitches that crossed the even pattern. Millie's touch ran over them lightly. You do not think they spoil it, do you? No. The woman looked at them in a little perplexity. They make a pattern, almost, she said wonderingly. Almost, said Millie, smiling. She took up her needles again. You see, I cannot tell how long I shall have to work on a case. Sometimes it is short, and then it is a jacket. And if it keeps on and grows longer, I call it a sweater. The woman's smile played with the idea. And if it is very long, I suppose it has to be a kimono. She laughed out. A knitted kimono. And suppose it is never finished, she cried. Then I put it away, said Millie, and it is nothing. The woman looked at her curiously. Did you ever have one like that? she asked softly. Yes, there is a very long one in a drawer at home. It has lain there for years. Perhaps it will never be finished. But I shake it out now and then, to be sure the moths have not got at it. She laughed, and the other's face lightened and smiled at her wistfully. "'I hope this one will not be shut away in a drawer,' she murmured. She moved her hand to the flying needles. "'This one? Oh, this one will be finished soon. It will not be as short as some I have made, mere shoulder capes, some of them, hardly more than scarfs, you know. But this will be quite a presentable jacket.' She spread it out again, and looked up with an assuring smile. A laugh broke from the woman's lips. Then it held itself. She turned quickly. A shadow had fallen on the table. Her hand gripped the arm of her chair. The man had come upon them suddenly around an angle of the house. He could not have seen them till he was close upon them. For a long moment he stood staring down at his wife and at the look of happiness in her face. Then his glance traveled to the gray figure in the wicker chair and to the amber needles that had not paused in their flight. He lifted his hat courteously. I did not mean to disturb you. He turned away and entered the house by another door. Slowly the woman's hand relaxed its grip on the chair. She sank back with a sigh. Millie's needles went on with even touch. Her eyes followed the retreating figure thoughtfully. The man's gaze had seemed to her infinitely sad as it rested on them, a look of loneliness and hopeless regret. The woman's hands lay relaxed in her lap. Her eyes were half-failed, but to Millie the glance behind the veiling lids was fixed on her intently. "'Mr. Mason came home early,' said Millie. She glanced at the watch on her wrist. Twenty minutes to six. "'Yes, he must have walked across the fields from the station. It is only two miles that way. He often used to do it, before we had the car.' All the animation had gone from her face. It had a tense look of being on guard, as if the sudden appearance of her husband had recalled some constant sense of danger that might withdraw for a minute, but never wholly left her. Millie looked across at her. "'There is one more thing I want to ask you,' she said slowly. "'Yes?' The figure in the chair stirred slightly and seemed to stiffen a little. "'You told me the other day,' said Millie, "'that the amount your son borrowed from the bank was three thousand dollars. Were the emeralds worth as much as that?' She leaned forward, speaking the words low. They could not have been heard beyond the other chair. The woman sat up. A swift flush spread over her face. She lifted it quickly. "'You must not think,' she cried under her breath. "'I do not think,' said Millie. "'But were they worth as much as that?' "'Oh, more, much more,' cried the woman. She covered her face for a moment. "'I do not know how valuable they were,' she said at last in a low voice. 
I only know my husband said we would not come to want as long as I had my necklace. She hesitated. I shall never forget his face the morning I discovered they were gone. I had not realized till then what the jewels meant to him. They had always seemed to me like playthings, to do what I liked with. You said it was he who insisted on having the detectives? Yes. You did not want them? No, oh, no. She clasped her hands quickly. Why did you not want them? The question was very gentle. I was afraid. It was all so bewildering. I could not be sure who was guilty. It might be— She broke off. Your own son. Her lip was trembling. Two tears were rolling down her cheek. Milly got up and put away her knitting, stabbing the needles through the ball. "'You must be brave. I think we shall find out who took your jewels and where they are.' The woman's hand reached out. "'But suppose—' Milly shook her head. "'You need not fear, whatever we discover. I am going now for a little walk, and you must rest before dinner.' As she passed her, she touched her shoulder gently. "'Do not think of anything while you rest, except that your son is coming in the morning.' Chapter Seventeen. The house was astir with expectation. Even at early daylight, while Milly went about her room dressing in leisurely fashion, sounds of activity came from the house below, and through her window came the whirring click of the lawnmower going back and forth, and a subdued murmur of voices. She went to the window and looked out. A phalanx of men in orderly rank was moving along the paths and borders, weeding and hoeing and pruning the scissors and hose and trowels and rakes flicked in the light with a little irregular tattoo of sound, and the bent backs of the men had an intent, absorbed look. When she descended the stairs, a battle and bustle of eagerness pervaded the house. Batson was everywhere, urging and directing his forces with solicitous presence. To Milly, the house and grounds had seemed in perfect condition the day before, but out of this movement and stir of preparation something new seemed to emerge— even before she reached the lower hall she felt its presence. Freshness everywhere, new muslin curtains at the great windows at either end of the upper hall, fresh sash curtains glimpsed through open doors, and flowers in every room. The dark pool had become a rippling pond in the morning sunshine, and the little running waves glinted in the freshening breeze that blew across it. Downstairs the doors at either end of the long hall stood open, and a little wind drew back and forth through the house. She felt it gratefully on her face as she passed into the sitting-room. Through the door to the breakfast-room she caught a glimpse of Mrs. Mason, standing by the sideboard, arranging a mass of crimson roses in a great silver bowl. When she saw Milly, she nodded to her almost gaily, and lifted the bowl of roses for her to see. She carried them to the table and adjusted them a little, and moved back to survey them fondly. She moved to the door. "'It's a wonderful day,' she said happily. "'When does your son come?' returned Milly. "'He will be here at ten. There was a telegram. At ten o'clock this morning.' The words were like a little singing refrain as she moved to her place at the table. From her seat Milly could see the empty chair and Mr. Mason's paper folded beside it, and presently he came in. He was a little haggard, as if perhaps he had not slept well, but he walked with quick step. He bowed almost formally to his wife as he came toward the table and took his seat. "'Did you sleep well, Oswald?' The questioning voice had a note of happiness, and her face turned to him with a smile. "'Fairly well,' he said politely. He opened his paper, shutting out the face. Her lip trembled a breath. 
Then the light returned to her face. She prepared his coffee and filled her own cup and drank a little, with absent gaze, as if other food had nourished her, and this were only a pretense, the mere form of eating, conceded from habit. "'I have been thinking, Oswald,' her voice broke across his paper, and he laid it down with courteous air. She leaned forward a little, her eyes scarcely seeing him, for the vision that filled them. She was speaking rapidly. "'Why couldn't we all ride over this afternoon, Stephen and you and I, and take tea with Elise? I have not seen her for so long, and Stephen will like it.' "'It is too soon,' replied the man, almost curtly. He resumed his paper again. His face had a grayish look as he took it up. "'But Oswald,' she protested, "'too soon? What could you mean? Such old friends. Surely we can drive over and say, How do you do to Elise the day he comes? I am going to call her up and see if she will be home.' She went swiftly toward the adjoining room to the telephone. He turned sharply. "'Annie!' he called. "'Yes, Oswald?' The response was absent and intent, and spoken aside from the phone. "'Yes, Oswald?' "'I don't want,' he began, but her voice broke across it joyously, speaking into the tube. "'Is that you, Elise? Stephen is coming this morning. Did you know? Yes, this morning. And we want to come over to tea, if you are going to be home.' "'What is it?' "'Yes, we are all coming. I have not seen you in an age, dear.' "'Yes, I know.' The voice grew tender and seemed to follow inaudible words with murmuring assent. "'I know, dear. But that is past. We are coming now. Yes. Good-bye.' She returned with radiant face. "'She will be at home,' she said. "'I think that was unwise,' said her husband swiftly. The haggard look he turned to her was almost stern. She regarded it with puzzled eyes. "'But, Stephen, it will please him,' she cried. "'You do not know what will please Stephen,' he said softly. "'Why, Oswald, Stephen!' She held the name with a little beseeching hurt and tenderness. "'You speak as if he were a stranger to us.' "'Perhaps he is a stranger. A year is a long time,' said the man. "'Oh, a year!' She clasped her hands tensely, gripping the misery of that year, crushing it back between them. "'Stephen will not have changed,' she said softly. He waited a moment. He seemed to hesitate to hurt her, and the words when they came were not harsh, only a little sad. "'He had changed before he went away,' said the man. She was looking at him with mute eyes. The brightness had gone from her face. He got up. "'It is time to go. I have an errand at the bank. Before he comes.' He took out his watch and looked at it hastily, and moved to the door. Milly saw him passing through the rooms and up the stairs, and it came to her suddenly to question whether Mr. Mason was a much older man than she had supposed. The figure going up the stairs stooped a little, and moved uncertainly, as if with an effort, and in the adjoining room the wife, with the little look of contented abstraction that had come back to her face, sipped her coffee and trifled with the toast. She seemed a young woman, twenty years younger at least, than the bent figure going up the stairs. Chapter 18 A little hush of waiting seemed to lie upon the house. All the sounds of expectancy had died away. Outside the men had withdrawn from the paths and borders, and their voices came faintly from the kitchen garden beyond the garage. Inside, Batson's shirt-sleeved figure and red, perspiring face were no longer visible. 
Only through the long hall the little breeze drew back and forth, and now and then the glimpse of a black dress passed quickly through. Mrs. Mason could not remain upstairs in her room, where she went immediately after breakfast, and she could not remain on the terrace to which she came a few minutes later. She moved aimlessly toward the kitchen garden, and came back and stood by the terrace balustrade, looking off on the trees where the driveway emerged. She passed down the steps from the terrace and gathered a little handful of flowers, and came back along the terrace, looking at them, and arranging them with an absent smile. A few of them fell from her fingers, unheeded, and she trod on them as she came forward. She approached the French window and looked in. "'They will be here soon,' she said. Millie looked up. "'Yes, wouldn't you better rest a little?' "'Rest!' she laughed, and reached out her arms in a careless gesture. The flowers slipped through her fingers. "'Rest! I am resting! The road off there rests me, and the sun, and every little sound. They all say he is coming home.' She stopped with a catch in her voice. Millie looked at her critically. She put down her work and came over to the window and stood beside her. The woman was motionless. Her eyes were fixed on the curving driveway. Millie put out a hand and touched her gently. "'See, you are crushing the flowers. You are spoiling them.' She removed them from her fingers. "'Give them to me,' she commanded. The woman relinquished them, looking dully at the bruised petals. "'Now we will get some water for them. Come.' Millie drew her into the room and sent her for a vase and stood over her while she arranged the flowers and placed them in the water. She looked up with a faint smile and nodded. "'Thank you. I needed just that. I understand. I will be quiet now.' She left the flowers on the table and got up. "'I am going to lie down till they come. I will be good,' she said. Then the house droned in quiet again, and Millie went on with her sewing, glancing off now and then to the curving drive or across to the distant hills. A car came round the curve, and she leaned forward a little eagerly to scan the younger of the two men on the back seat. He was shorter than his father, but there was the same look of alert poise in his bearing as the car swept up the curve and paused at the foot of the steps. Almost before it had ceased running, his foot was on the step, and he had crossed the terrace and was at the foot of the stairs, holding his mother in his arms. Through the door the seamstress saw for a moment the look that passed between the two. Then they turned, and, with his arm about her, they moved along the hall, talking in broken words. The father joined them a moment later, and they went upstairs together. There could be no doubt of the happiness in this homecoming. The woman in the sewing-room had only to see their faces to be sure of that. Yet over it and through it all was a kind of constraint, something stiffened by strangeness or disuse or something held back through fear, something that dared not trust itself to be wholly at rest. After a time she saw them out of doors, walking about the grounds. Then they passed to a tree on the other side of the terrace, and sat down. She could not see the tree from the sewing-room, only the sound of voices came to her, and now and then laughter, a little unreal and hesitating, it seemed to her. But the scent of a very good cigar that drifted across to her had nothing unreal in its fragrance. After a time the figures of the mother and son appeared on the terrace outside her window, where the shadow of the house fell across the bricks. They paced back and forth in the shade, talking quietly. Their words came to her, indistinctly at first, then a little louder, the son's voice in protest, it seemed to her. "'But, mother, I cannot. Let me have a little time at home first with you. 
"'But it will seem strange, Stephen, and unfriendly,' the voice was pleading. "'We do not want to hurt Elise,' she added after a minute. "'It will not hurt Elise,' he replied firmly. "'Elise has always understood.' The words had a secure ring. "'Come, mother, you must lie down and rest. I must take care of you, just as I used to.' He bent over her tenderly, and she lifted her face for a kiss. Then she turned and moved blindly toward the window of the sewing-room. She stepped in, facing the seamstress. Outside on the terrace, Milly could see the son lighting his cigar and placing it to his lips. The mother's face was helpless and distressed. "'Stephen will not go,' she cried. She was vexed like a child, but there was a deeper protest in the disturbed face. Milly came close to her. "'Let your son remain at home, Mrs. Mason,' she said quietly. The woman looked at her. "'You too?' she exclaimed. Her eyes were puzzled. "'I want to talk with him alone, when he can feel there is no one around. This may be the best chance we shall have, if you both go.' The mother looked at her a little wistfully. "'If you say it is best, I will do it. I trust you.' "'Yes, it is best,' said Milly. "'And you will not be sorry. It is the way you can help.' The mother looked at the figure, pacing thoughtfully on the terrace, the smoke drifting from his cigar and floating lightly off. She gave a little apologetic smile. "'I cannot bear to have him out of my sight,' she confided. "'And I feel the same,' said Milly, with a half-smile. "'Oh!' breathed the mother. She made a motion to the window, as if to protect him. "'You think you will discover something?' she cried softly. "'I think so. I hope so.' The woman looked at her sharply, and her face paled a little. Then it recovered its smile, and she shook her head. "'You are quite wrong,' she said. "'He is as innocent as I am.' "'I believe it fully,' said Milly. "'You can trust him to me. Go now and rest.' 